Episode 2, Kwanzaa of Sajifo. Hello everyone and welcome back to Creative Credit, a show dedicated to conversations with talent from across the comic book industry. Artists, writers, inkers, letterers, colorists, and more. I'm your host, Chad Bokelman. As you know, this episode we'll be speaking with Kwanzaa Osagifo, and I'm very excited to get to that conversation. But first, let's talk a bit about episode one. My conversation with Steve Rude was a fantastic way to kick off this show. And if I'm being honest, I'm still a tad flabbergasted I got to kick this series off with one of my favorite creators. One thing I wanted to point out was the quote-unquote formality of that interview. And to that end, let's extend a bit of the big picture goals I have in place for this show. To know where I want to go, you need to understand a bit about what I admire. My single favorite late-night talk show was The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. From word go, Craig always wanted to shatter the stereotypical late-night format and do his own thing. Damn the censors, damn the network, damn the expectations. An actor comes on to talk about their upcoming project? Cool. We'll make a mockery of the fact that we have to reference it in the last five seconds of the interview. In the meantime, we'll talk about bowel movements, general likes and dislikes, flirt a bit for the hell of it, and cap things off with a dealer's choice of a mouth organ or an awkward pause. But while Craig began every interview with ripping up pre-interview cue cards and tossing them dismissively behind him, he also took the time to talk openly and honestly about his drug and alcohol abuse, the death of his parents, serious events, and in early 2007, when the thing to do was offer a moment of comedy surrounding Britney Spears' public breakdown, Craig stopped to share his perspective of support and empathy at times when someone is clearly falling apart and in a vulnerable state. So sure, the point of this show is to give a glimpse into the real world of the comics industry and ask questions about the projects and process, and to be an utter fanboy at points. I'll help promote the upcoming projects where I can, but I also want this podcast to be honest and real, and never stop chasing after a conversation over an interview. And that's where I'm happy to bring you my conversation with Kwanzaa. I told Kwanzaa before we began our recording that I was hungering for something like Craig did. He immediately understood as he was a fan of Craig too. I think Kwanzaa and I's conversation is very informal and laid back, while also being no holds barred. So without further ado, I present to you my conversation with Kwanzaa Osagifo. Alright everybody, the f- guest this episode is going to be Kwanzaa Osajifo. Kwanzaa is the creator of the series known as Black from Black Mask Entertainment and the kind of world that has been built around that with the subsequent Black AF series. You've got Widows and Orphans out of that. You've got uh, uh, you've got the America's Sweetheart. There's so much stuff coming out of this. Kwanzaa, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, so the the goals of this show are very loose, but the title of the show is Creative Credit. So the thing I wanted to do most is give people a platform to talk about the stuff that they themselves have worked on. But before we do that, I, I was reading up, I was researching, and I wanted to get just a bit into your history. Now, I don't know where I want to start with this because there are two overlapping things. I went online and I was reading uh, the editorial that you posted over on Bleeding Cool in 2016. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I was I was reading up, man. I I, I do my due diligence Uh, and I don't know what I want to ask about first, but let's talk. uh, Let's just jump into it. If it leads into the other, that's fine. Let's talk about the conversation you had with Dwayne McDuffie, because it sounds like this is a big uh, inspiration for you. Uh, It's a big it's a big sort of 
launching point for the traje- trajectory of where you wanted to take things in your own career in the comics industry. So you yeah. meeting up with Dwayne, how did how did that how did that affect you? How did that impact you? And how did that conversation go? Yeah, well, um, so I guess it starts with just me being uh, me having been a comic book fan my entire life. I mean, I had fallen in love with comic books at a really really young age. Like we're talking like fresh out of diapers. I was like, comic books are the best thing. So I was already you know a collector by the time I was like you know seven or eight years old, you know, going to the shop every month. And, you know, when, when you're reading comic books, you know, it's a form of escapism. You're just like kind of in it for, for, for what it is. But, you know, one of the things that didn't occur to me until the emergence of milestone media was that there weren't many characters who looked like me or came from a background similar to mine, basically reflected, you know, the life that I had had. And so when they came on the scene with hardware and static and icon and blood syndicate and heroes and all these like fantastic books that were just, you know, super multi-culty, it blew my mind. Like this is, you know, back in the nineties. So now you're all going to do math and figure out how old I am. Um, um, (laughs) you know, it was, it was something that I just, just really sort of, you know, opened my eyes, you know, and, and and it was, it was strange because it wasn't something that I had given much thought up until that point. And I was so inspired that, you know, I read like the Indicia, found like Milestone's phone number, their address and all that stuff. And I cold called them <laughs> and told them, whoever answered that phone, I was like, I'm the hot new artist. Like, you know, I, I'm a comic book creator. Like, I, you guys should really look at my stuff. I, I want to come work with you and do stuff at Milestone. And they were gracious enough to schedule an appointment for me to, you know, do a portfolio review. Mind you, I didn't really have like, you know, professional portfolio. I was like pretty young at that point and, you know, just drawing and writing on whatever I could get my hands on. But I put something together, show up at their offices, and I am ushered into the office of their editor in chief, Dwayne McDuffie. So here I am, you know, like barely like, you know, in high school and this towering man is sitting above me looking through my artwork. <laughs> and like reading my ideas and you know Dwayne is just such you know such, such an awesome person that you know even though he you know kind of let me down gracefully um he took the rest of his time you know with me to ask me like you know why did I want to be in comic books what did I want to do like what what interested me in the medium and you know we had a we had we had a nice conversation back and forth and he kind of you know essentially gave me like the cheat sheet for how to break into comic books and like how to navigate that space as a person of color. So I, I, I gotta, I gotta ask given where you ended up creating black and everything, is this a point where Dwayne takes some time to say, maybe uh, customize his advice and say, look, uh, one young black man to another, I gotta, I gotta tell you, this is what, this is what's coming up. And the reason I ask this in particular is because of the, you know, from reading that Bleeding Cool editorial, from some of the time, your time and experience at the Big Two, and the way that you kind of view the industry and your time in there, and, and, and the sort of revelations that you encounter there, does, does, does Dwayne just sort of break that down for you and give you kind of the cheat sheet for, for your experience and, and what you're seeing in the industry versus how you proceed going forward? Uh, yeah, he definitely didn't. It's, it's funny because it was almost like he it, it, it was it was subliminal, <laughs> you know what he what what he said to me because it didn't really register until after I had gotten in. So it's like he kind of like you know gave me the matrix download, and then once I was in comic books, is when all of a sudden all of those things that he had said started clicking in my mind because you know here here I was it was my first job out of college, basically working at Marvel. And, you know, I was, you know, one of the few people of color at the company. And there were certainly no editors, you know, at Marvel who were people of color when I was there. And they obviously had had some in their history. But, you know, it, it was something that, you know, stuck out to me. But moving along in my career, you're young, whatever. It was really when I went over to D.C. that, like, it really solidified in my mind that it was like, okay, so, like, now it's been, you know, a- almost like a decade in between me leaving Marvel and now working at DC and still this is the landscape. 
you know, not a lot had changed. And it was a lot of the same faces, too, because, you know, people who worked at DC worked at Marvel. It's kind of a revolving door. And, you know, those were the things that, like, reminded me of stuff that Dwayne had said, you know, that, you know, it, it's it's very, you know, insular sort of industry and stuff like that. It's very small, you know, and these are things to be mindful of. And, like, you know, it, it's a lot of the same people, you know, at both companies. So you're not, like, you're not going to be able to, like, burn a bridge, you know, at DC and think you won't see that person again at, like, you know, Marvel or Dynamite or like <laughs> Dark Horse. Like, it, it's that small. So those are things to, you know, that, that really stuck with me. But really what it was was just, like, that lack of, of um, diversity and how that impacted content. Because you, you, even in, you know, casual spaces, you would, you, you would hear, you know, certain viewpoints or things about stories or characters or, like, you know, or comics. And you would realize how very, like, limited the perspectives were for such a, you know, large group of people. Hmm. And that was sort of what inspired Black. What's interesting to me is because, and I'm I'm kind of jumping around here, but, but but these are based just based on the conversation. Some of the things I'm reading about, like I, I'm reading up a bit on on the stuff that's going uh, that's going on over at Humanoids uh, with the the new Ignited series, and you know they've got uh, the preview already up for uh, the stuff that's going to be coming out on Free Comic Book Day, and there's some blurbs and stuff in there. And I was reading one uh, from from you. Uh, and you were talking about, you know, how much the, the French comics industry and, and humanoids uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, meshed for you. So I was wondering, you know, with, with Zuda, is what you see in humanoids, what you were what you were kind of experiencing and getting out of Zuda as that was going on? Like this is this is just a continuation of that feel for that environment that you were in at Zuda over at Humanoids? Because, you know, you, you mentioned the sensibilities of the, the French comics industry that attracted you uh, to the to the Humanoids team. So I'm just sort of curious about how these these two led into one another and how similar they feel to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for, for, for what we were talking about in terms of, like, you know, representation and agency, you know, and, and agency for people of color, I, I had the good fortune when we were doing Zuda to be operating, you know, in a, in a territory that was kind of out of the purview and out of the expertise of traditional editorial. So we were able to get away with and do a lot of really interesting stuff in terms of like what we published and which are like creators that we worked with. So, you know, one of our lead titles coming out of Zuda was Bayou, which is a sort of, you know, um, early, like 20th century, you know, Alice in Wonderland story of this, like, young woman going into, like, this fantasy world to save her father from being lynched, you know, and meeting this mystical character Bayou and Br'er Rabbit and all these other fanciful characters, you know. And it it's this sort of thing where, you know, if I had had to pitch that within a traditional editorial group, it would have never gotten greenlit. You know, it wouldn't, it, or it would have been, you know, it would have tried to. It would have tried to be codified into something like, well, oh, this has to sit over here, and if we do it this way, then like, you know, how are we gonna do this and that rather than just let creators tell a story? So, you know, with with French comics, you know, I tend to find that they treat the medium uh, much like we do with like traditional authors here who you know write novels, where it's like, you know, you have a story to tell, and that's what your that's what your goal is, and if that aligns with the publisher, that's what you're allowed to do. So, you know, a lot of the difference with, um, you know, comic books in America is that, you know, it's all about brand, it's all about marketing, it's all about sensation, it's all about, like, you know, the, the, these event spikes. And that sort of thing, you know, de- depending can, can really work because I think we've seen some fantastic comic books coming out. Like, I've, I've loved all of the stuff that Dan Slott's been allowed to do. But, mm. you know, that also comes with Dan Slott having proven himself by doing a lot of stuff where he was just kind of, you know, like, I'm a new guy writing, like, you know, issue who cares what number and, like, working your way up to, you know, a, a trusted author. But I think, you know, with, with Humanoids and, like, with Zuda, we were really being, you know, creator-focused and, and, and focused on the story and the narrative that we're trying to put forward more than the sensationalism. That that uh, that makes a lot of sense to me, and 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 it's sort of a callback to your time in the industry and that 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 uh, editorial. Oh, you know what, guys, if you're listening at home. Uh, I'll put a link to that editorial just so you can read it for yourself because I don't we don't want to put words in Kwanzaa's mouth. But you're talking you're talking about your time at the Big Two and your experience there. 
as a comic fan and as someone who is, you know, uh, with the Green Lantern podcast I've been doing, you know, it, you, you can't help but wonder how much control editorial has in the creative process, whether they uh, are taking away from story, art, whatever. And there have been times when you can sit there and accuse uh, editorial of something that maybe the writer chose to do or vice versa. So I was curious, the, the stuff that you talk about, uh, it talked about in that editorial when you were back, back when you were promoting Black and the Kickstarter, um, how, how is just the environment, uh, different there? Uh, it's, it's, it just sounds like what you were talking about with, uh, marketing and sensationalism and stuff like that. So much of what DC and Marvel does is, is this in service of, or it sounds like rather that is this in service of the larger profit margin? Can this be adapted? Can this be successful in other media? Uh, blah blah blah. Where it sounds like Zuda, uh, humanoids, uh, the stuff you've been doing at Black Mask. That all of this is much more. Is this the story that the creator wants to tell? And is this the story we want to be associated with? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's that's that. You know, it's twofold. It's a double-edged sword because you know you're you're also working with these brands that have existed for longer than you know any of the people who are currently you know uh, the stewards of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you, you you got these characters that are turning like 75 years old, like soon, or like you know 60 years old. So there's there's a lot of them that are that are, that are much greater than the people who have the tough task of like, you know, make, making sure they stay relevant at the same time, you know, what comes from that is you have a lot of top down sort of editorial. And I think that's one of the things that as an editor, editor, like I experienced and found kind of strange is that, you know, I had worked on, you know, having a reputation in Zuda of being very collaborative and like letting, you know, uh, creators tell their story. And as an editor being more of a sounding board to, to help refine or point out, you know, you know, issues or problems with the story that any, that any editor would at any other publishing company. It's just like, Hey, you got this big giant plot hole in here. I just wanted to point that out to you, to you. If you want to keep going with it, knock yourself out, but people are going to see it. Most creators are really thankful if you can point those things out. <laughs> right. You know, as opposed to, you know, you really need to jam this character in here because we have this like big crossover event and stuff like that. And we want to make sure that this character appears in this issue so that we can sell more books of the other issue, you know, that sort of thing. Or when you just have to have a character, you know, be in print for the sake of like maintaining IP ownership or recognition. So there's a lot of that stuff that comes with it. And I think that there's ways to do that creatively. But what tends to happen, I think, is you just kind of have these mandates that come from like on high that then the editors have to, you know, sort of march out and, 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 and make sure it happens, which, you know, editors, editors at both companies like it's a thankless job and like these people are amazing producers which is what i think they really should be called you know um but you know often that that's the case and i and i think you know a lot of editors who are on the front line who are the point person to a lot of creatives get a lot of like you know bad reps when really what they're doing is what they're being told to do like these are these are salary jobs with you know 401k plans that people have to keep (laughs) yeah yeah i gotcha and so it sounds like it's almost more at, at, at the big two. It's almost not that, and not that your criticism is invalid. That's 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 not at all uh, the point. But it's almost like the the issues going on at the big two uh, or other publishers, indie publishers that have been around for a while that are maybe trending this way are is not necessarily a fact of uh, you know they're they're doing business wrong. It's just. The business has been going for so long. It's just so set in its ways, and it's such a machine at this point. It's so hard for the people who are creating the content to shout loud enough, together enough, to get the people up the chain to change the way this business has been running for so long. In, in, in some degree, yes. But I mean, the thing that I that you know I, I've seen change, especially in the last like five to ten years, which has been great. And I always attribute this to like Bill Jemis becoming, you know, part of Marvel is that that was one company that stopped being quite so brand precious and so focused on like the big all encompassing monster event that just chews up everything. So you've had a lot more experimentation. I mean, and also, you know, in some cases to their own fault because you know, they're constantly having the reboots and the number ones and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a pendulum swing if you're doing a comparison between like the big two, but you know, it, it's, it, it's definitely something where it's like, you know, when I first got into comic books, you never would have seen, you know, a character like Honey Badger come into existence and, and have any sort of like 
real presence or agency. You wouldn't have seen like, you know, uh, Dan Slott's take on Silver Surfer. You know, there, there's, there's been a lot more risk and reward that I think has come out of it. Like, you know, with Miss Marvel characters like Squirrel Girl, like, who would have thought that, like, you know, we'd be reading Squirrel Girl comics or that, like, Rocket Raccoon and, and Groot would be household names? You know, so I, I think, I think there, there is something there. I think what, you know, tends to happen though is, like, people feel like because they're, there's so much, there's so many eyes on something that they need to put it out there just to have it out there, as opposed to doing what got them there in the first place, which is tell great stories. And that's been proven out. Like, if you look at a company like DC, like, mostly their, like, biggest selling titles and the things that we know them for are almost all stories that happened outside of the, the mainstream continuity. So when you think of, like, uh, you know, um, The Dark Knight, that's not a continuity story. You know, you think of a world without Superman, not a continuity story. Red Sun, not a super, like, you know, not a continuity story. You know, Watchmen, which is, you know, supposed to be like the pinnacle of like, you know, all superhero comic books is not in any sort of continuity, or at least it wasn't. Um, so you've got all of these things that like really have had an impact, even, a, you know, between the big two that were really stories that were driven by the, the author's need to tell it as opposed to, you know, the companies need to sell it. All right. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. So I, I see what you're saying, and and it's the the way everything's the way everything's trending uh, seems to make sense. But it's almost like there's there's so many different companies trying so many different things at the same time, but not giving these tries, these attempts, enough time in the spotlight to really find their footing because. As with any new uh, experiment, any new any any sort of new sort of uh, idea, you got to give it time to solidify and find its own ground before before it can move forward and, and gain any sort of traction and an audience. So it's interesting though your experience in all this and all the stuff you did for Marvel for DC at Zuda, uh, the stuff you're doing now uh, that that the then that influences the now and Black just just kind of blew everybody away in terms of the Kickstarter. And and here we'll get into it because I, if I pulled one sentence out of the editorial at all, it was when you said diversity is on trend, but inclusion is not. And I feel yeah. like that's such a, that's such a good encapsulation of your perspective a bit on the industry and also your, your inspiration for moving forward in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's hard to have a authentic perspective on experiences that you haven't thoroughly researched or that you haven't had. That's just, that's just the rule for being a storyteller, period. There, there is no way around it. You either have to have experienced it or you have to have like done like a whole, whole lot of homework. And I think, you know, at the time, especially when we had done black, you know, we had seen, you know, this sort of adoption of, you know, uh, narratives or characters who were of color, but you didn't have creatives who could speak to who those characters would intrinsically be, you know, and that's not to say that some of those characters aren't still valid or beloved and stuff like that. But when I look at like a character like Miles Morales and, and think like, okay, this is, this is a great character and stuff like that. But, and not to say that like this person doesn't exist out there because they very much do, but you know, you tend to have a character like that where it's played very safely. You know, he goes to a charter school. He's, you know, a good student. He has both parents and you know, you don't want to play to any stereotypes or have any like really negative characters in there or characteristics or people around him. Like everything's just kind of like hunky dory because to be honest, you have, you know, storytellers who, you know, can't speak to the real experience that this character might have being a person of color and who the people around him could be, you know, in, in, in all, in all forms, you know. I think the closest you sort of came, come to that was, you know, his, his, his uncle, the prowler, you know, who was just sort of like, yeah, everybody's got that, you know, everybody's got that uncle, <laughs> you know, who maybe like, gets into some stuff and is, you know, and is about that life. But, you know, it, it still doesn't like come across that way or, or it, with that, you know, tone or, or experience to it. And that, again, doesn't take away from like that character who's fantastic, beloved, and, you know, just spawned one of the, 
best freaking animated movies <laughs> I've seen. Um, Preach. But, I yeah. love that film. Yeah. But, you know, I, to, to get to that point, I think, you know, they, Marvel, Sony, and all those, all those companies had to, you know, have these characters be put out there and then realize that they had to get, you know, the right people in the room to tell that story in a real authentic way that was going to engage, you know, the, the more audiences or else people don't really believe it. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's that sort of thing, like with the hip hop covers that Marvel did when they first came out. They done all these hip hop covers, but like a bunch of the artists were not black people, and it was this sort of like <laughs> thing where you know it, 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 it's it's that kind of thing where it's like okay, you're showing an, an affection for you know this music and this culture, and yet you seem to be oblivious to the fact that everybody you've hired to like you know do the work on this aren't this you know waiting and hungry group of you know, like black artists who are there, <laughs> they're there. You know, that you've worked with them before and like that to me would have been like an easy one to do. And somehow they fumbled the ball in the first round of that. So it was, it's, it's that sort of thing where it's just like the inclusion is, is still not there. And I think, th- I think they still struggle with it because, you know, w- what's preceded a lot of it, you know, and I, and I feel like I'm rambling and telling very long stories here, but what's preceded a lot of it is just this history of not, of, of not having enough people of color in the Rolodex that like now what we're seeing, which is still great. Is that, you know, people are having to come in who already have like, you know, a big ass audience. Sorry, can I curse something? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. You know, who who already have like a following and stuff like that in order to like, you know, have, you know, some sort of like leverage or some, or or be in the, in the eye of these companies. Because, you know, if, if, if the criteria for writing a Marvel comic now is to be like Tanahasi Coates, well, come on. (laughs) <laughs> like i gotta i gotta write for the atlantic for a couple of years and then do like best-selling books i mean dude that's like that's like that's a tall order for a person of color you know a lot of other a lot of other comic writers don't really have to jump through that kind of hoop you know and and you know there's definitely been a lot of people of color who have been writing comics you know for for marvel and dc and in the industry for a long time and they're and they're still not like really getting those those key or marquee jobs you know yeah and and, and you know uh, and this is where i'll let's 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 dive into black and i, I want to get it in i want to get into it in a way that's not like 100 percent spoilery because i want people to i want people to read it but at the same time it's hard to talk about it without being spoilery so if if we end up doing it that's fine but heads up for folks who are listening to this trying to find a, a, an entry point into it there's potential for spoilers here but one of the things I wanted to ask is we are all so, so as perspective, we are all guardians of our, our of our own history and our own perspective. I'm a white guy from I'm 30. I live in Austin, Texas, which is a blue dot in a red state state. Oh, yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you, one of, one of the things I wanted to ask you about black is how much of it is fictional, because, again, this is me being a, a blue dot in a red state when I read it. I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm seeing the perspective. I'm seeing what you're doing. You know, what if, you know, just like the back jacket says in a world that already hates and fears them, you know, what if black people had superpowers? So I'm taking that history. I'm, 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 I'm treating it like a, what if sort of Mm -hmm. from that when I get that. So this has been happening in this universe for a while. So I read it and I see all the, 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 the bigoted remarks and the slurs and the amount of hate from the white community within the book. And part of me wonders, and I got to ask is, is that, is the severity of that, the, the prevalence of that somewhat fictional because of the world in which it happens or be again, this is, this is a white guy who doesn't see this on the regular and doesn't in a blue dot in a red state, doesn't see people treated like this quite as often. So is, is are there parts of the country that you've gone into where you're 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 getting this, and your people are getting this, a hundred percent all the time, every time. Yeah. Or so. So that was one of the things that, like, you know, I thought about, you know, as I was writing a book, because you know, I've I've had my own personal experiences, like, with racism, and they don't come through in this book, like, from the personal perspective. But you know, one of the things that I remember that kind of made me laugh a little bit was. Um, that people thought it was timely. They were like, "Oh, what a what a great time to be doing a book like this. It's it's so it's so relevant to now, you know, because 
the lead character, Kareem Jenkins, in the book, and he, he has a run-in with the police. They mistake him and his friends for some other people, and they open fire and shoot and kill him. And, you know, it's a superhero book. Everybody who comes back to life, that's not a spoiler. I mean, come on. He finds that he has superpowers. Um, but, you know, a lot of people felt that, you know, the shooting of Kareem was the fictional part. So, you know, th- this is this is comic books and, and comic book fans in a, in, in, a, in a strange nutshell is that, you know, the idea of people being able to fly and shoot lasers out of their eye, eyeballs is like completely acceptable. But, you know, trying to wrestle with the, the very real, you know, problem with, like, you know, police violence against unarmed like people of color. Well, that that's just that's the part that's far fetched, despite the fact that it's statistically proven to happen at a larger at a disproportionate rate to like black men and women and that we now have video evidence of it. I mean, the Philando Castile um, video is like as cut and dry as you can get, you know? So it's that sort of thing that I always found a little bit strange because I was pulling, you know, a, a lot of these things from the headlines and articles that I, that, that I had read and experiences that like, you know, friends and relatives had had and, to put that into a book and have people who maybe again, as, as you haven't, because there's parts of it, you know, in a story that I haven't experienced, I've never been shot by the police, obviously. Um, that, you know, people seem to push back against, but it's someone else's very real experience, you know? So there's the one incident in the second chapter where character Cole is about to be, uh, you know, set on fire by these old, by these good old boys in the, in the back, you know, swamps of New Orleans. And that was something that I had, you know, read in an article, a news article. And I, I was like following the story about like, you know, these people like setting this like dude on, letting to set this dude on fire for something that had happened to, you know, a young white girl. And it was the sort of thing where it's like people don't think this sort of stuff happens anymore. And yes, it very much does. You know, right. and, and, and that's the thing that's kind of kind of jarring because, you know, people don't seem to get that just because something isn't happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And that's exactly yeah. why I wanted to ask about it, because, uh, you know, again, we're the guardians of our own perspective. I can only talk about the world in which I've seen and experienced, but it doesn't mean that another experience isn't valid or that's why I wanted to ask about it is because the severity of it was was so prevalent in there it all that i could see and this is this is not necessarily something i came away with reading it and went okay this is what kwanz is doing i i thought okay of the different potential ways this story could be going maybe one of the things kwanza is saying here again a possibility is that in a world where they have superpowers maybe what already exists in our culture now that he's making commentary on could be pushed to an even further level where it's just you know, past, you know, uh, it passed this point of saturation to everybody around uh, in, in the white community or in the country or, or whatever. But I can see I, I definitely see what you're saying. But I, I wanted to ask about it because I can see some people going, oh, it's because it's fictional and because it's we're going with this premise, then everything else must also be following this fictional narrative, which is not true. So. Yeah, which 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 would actually be like a, a valid like reason for people to think that it isn't true in a book. You know? <laughs> like, right. It really it really would be. It's like, oh, it's because they have powers. I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> why. <laughs> yeah, right. And <laughs> uh, and I and I, I, I did want to bring it up though because it, as a way to sort of pivot to this is because the 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 book received criticism when it's out it's far more popular than the criticism it gets and and as we on another show like to say vocal minority <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, who are who are against this sort of a thing but you know you you talk about you know how are there they they, they some of the criticism they say about you know like allies uh, in there how are there no white people who are for the black community in, in these books but then you go then you read like america's sweetheart and eli you know good girl she she has her her family and her mm-hmm. friends and stuff around her. And then you have like, uh, and, and for correct me if I'm wrong, because, uh, black was, uh, was printed in black and white. And then America's Sweetheart and some of the other books that followed are in color. Is, yes. Dr. PQ is a white person. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So then you have someone working within the organization who is white. And then you have Zion, 
Good Girl's uh, sister who comes from the future in this whole thing uh, in this sort of dystopian nightmare where this keeps keeps uh, going in such a way that uh, the, the race is enslaved yet again because of these powers and comes back and tries to convince Good Girl. It's almost like a, a Zod versus Superman sort of a thing <laughs> uh, in terms of in terms of at least in some of some of the aspects that I w- was able to, to read into it. And and Eli still comes away trying to fight for everybody and fight for her family. So it's not like she's just trying to fight for just the black people. She's trying to fight for everybody. And X at the end of Black says, "Let's don't kill man. Let's 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 be better than them." So I never understood this this narrative that the this universe you've created has received from various audience people uh, people who've read this. Where they say it's all about hate, it's all anti-white, it's all racist to someone other than uh, than those in the black community. Where it's very clearly preaching, yes, even though the community has been put upon like this and we are putting a spotlight on this, the the answer is still love. So mm-hmm. I just, I, I, I never, I never, how, how do you deal with something like that? Because... You're, as a black man, you're, 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 this is a personal thing for you. So how it's, it's a bit different than someone writing a story, any story in any comic book industry and getting criticism about just a general story. When you take something so personal to you and make it into a story and they get this sort of feedback on it, how does that, how does that impact you? Well, I can say honestly that it doesn't. Not in a way where you would think that, like, I'm losing any sleep. I sleep very well every night. Um, it's more that it basically, to, it, to me, it, it validates exactly what the reason for me making black was, you know, because there is this absence. There's this thing that, you know, people who see a comic book like black and then immediately think that it is anti-white don't understand is that if you feel that it is that way, it is because you made it that way. Like I didn't like Africans did not come to this country and decide like, Hey, you know what? I used to be Congolese, but now guess I'm going to be black. <laughs> like The term like exists. And when it's said, it's made, it, it, it invokes the idea of not white. So when people see it, they immediately have to come to terms with the idea of honestly whiteness. You know, and what that and what the context of like uh, a society that was essentially built on like, you know, chattel slavery and like genocide of like, you know, indigenous people means, you know, what does being black mean in America besides to not be white? And so I think when people are confronted with that, then they have to start thinking about race and then they get uncomfortable because then they have to start realizing that they they are white. You know, and all these things like rile up in them. And then because of that discomfort, they immediately want to make the thing that made them uncomfortable the the enemy, the provocateur, you know, that that is in the wrong, you know, as opposed to like looking at something and saying like, you know, if what you felt, you know, about racism not existing or me or me personally being a race bitter were 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 true, then you wouldn't be upset. That's it in a nutshell. Like if these things didn't exist, then I would just be some lunatic on the street, <laughs> like screaming at clouds. But the truth is, is that it does exist and you don't know how to like come to terms with that. And that's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely you understand know? that. And that, that sort of spends into the, the, the state, the, uh, the, the big, I say, it, calling it a debate almost seems like there's something worth being said on the other side. Um, but uh, the, the debate, for lack of a better term, in the comic industry uh, with regards to Comicsgate and all the stuff that's been going on there. Uh, as as a creator, I'm uh, you know I, I just want to let I want to let you loose on it because quite honestly, uh, I can sit here and say as a comic book fan my perspective on it, and that could mean one thing. But one thing. One thing I, I will say with regards to quote unquote the debate is is there's so much venom in it, uh, and sometimes on both sides, obviously more so on one one side than the other. But uh, there's so much venom in it sometimes that the 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 conversation that could happen is getting shouted down in some mm. in some cases. 
But as a creator, you have a different perspective. As a man of color, you have a different perspective. Uh, and you have a unique perspective when you combine those two, especially given what Comic Skate's goals are and what, what they've, what they've said that their, their points of view are on the subject. So, uh, you know, I just, I just, I want to let you loose on it, man. What do you, what do you think of what's been happening in the industry with regards to, to Comic Skate? Well, I, I, honestly, I don't think much has been happening aside from a bunch of really entitled and angry and, in my opinion, largely white men being angry about the fact that there are now women, people of color and LGBTQ folks telling stories about their experiences and their perspective and working in comic books. So, you know, it, it really, to me, comes down to an argument of like that episode of Star, uh, South Park where it's like, you're dealing our yaps. Like that. <laughs> That's that's kind of what what it comes down to because you know that that section that small section of people online like who just never stop tweeting really don't have a point of view. It keeps changing. You know, on one day it's you know it's about you know uh, professionalism in comic books, and another time a day it's about you know revolutionizing the indie market, and another time it's about like you know, a uh, liberal agenda being forced into comic books and stuff like that. Like it, it, it's, it's this, it's this constantly pivoting, shifting, like, you know, list of like, you know, um, of, I don't know, gripes and, and whining that doesn't really ever like shake out to anything. So really to me, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a valid movement. Because it doesn't have a point that actually like wants to do anything except shut down other people from being able to participate in comics, which is completely ridiculous. And you, you, you can't, you can't find anyone arguing that point who isn't really just trying to shut down other voices, you know? And, yeah. and just like, for example, like the whole term of like SJW, it's just like the, 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 the height of irony because every single superhero is a social justice warrior. Every single one. <laughs> they are taking matters into their own hand to one, not as like official police, like solve social issues, whether it's crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, governance, you know, that, that's, that's literally what they do and they do it masked, you know? So it, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's an argument that, that really tries to like mask what is essentially a hate movement and that, and that's what they are. And, and it's a small and dwindling hate movement. You know, I, I think one of the good things that has happened recently is that there's just been a lot more uh, light shown on it. And, and the more that you've taken the things that these people are saying and, and brought them to the forefront, the more they've realized that, you know, or maybe not fully realized, but the, the more that they've not been able to stand behind the things that they're saying and have gone away, you know, and, and some of the like bigger proponents of that nonsense had done exactly that. They've gone away because for all of the time they spent online, you know, harassing creators and, and coming after all of us, it was them who blinked and left. You know, yeah. when 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 the attention was was a little too much, they're the ones that ran. Right. Because we're not we're not the ones getting kicked off with Twitter and YouTube <laughs> every every other day. You know, I've never been banned from from Twitter like ever. Yeah. And I see what the hell I think. Yeah, it, it, I, I've seen it. <laughs> I, I did some research, <laughs> but uh, I, I agree with you. I compare Comicsgate somewhat uh, to glow-in-the-dark uh, items. So if you can do something. By that I mean you can do something in glow-in-the-dark. I can sit this white wall here in my room. I can paint a glow-in-the-dark something with uh, with some some kind of uh, the glow paint. If I put a spotlight on it, you're not really going to see it's there. But you shove it into a dark corner, suddenly it's going to light up a little bit and people are going to start paying attention to it. In the absence of light, it shines. <laughs> and that's that that sort of encapsulates it for me. I, I, I find it hard with Comicsgate because it's so weird to me that this industry, we, we were all geeks. Like we we were I never understood like the even the debates like when you went into a comic book shop or something and like. People be like, oh, you like like the DC versus Marvel thing? Like, we're, we're comic fans. Right. We we used to get picked on. Now we're gonna pick on each other. 
Like, that's good. That's going to be a thing we do now, guys. Come on. Like, that's how I feel about comic skaters because it's so hard for me because I have this mentality of like, we're all the same person. We're all, we're all geeks. We all want to, we all want to just share this, this love of this medium. And yet I try to, you know, seek some of these people out, not to, to converse with them, but just to sort of read what they're saying to just say, maybe I'm misunderstanding something or, or whatever, but it never, it never works out. I always get shouted down and it's just, it's, you know, quite honestly, it's a shame. It's a shame that we can't have a conversation anymore about this, this sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and I think, and I honestly think the reason we can't have a conversation about it is because there's no conversation to be had. Like when you, when your argument is that I'm a diversity hire and the only reason that I got hired in comics or that my comic is, you know, has done as well as it has is because of, you know, diversity hire. Like one, you're not acknowledging the fact that if there's a reason, a need for diversity hiring, it's because there's an absence of black people in a given field. Like you're, 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 you're blaming the problem or you're, you're blaming the solution as if it's the problem. You know, it's like, Imagine a room full of like you know nothing but like white people. I'm gonna I'm gonna be very literal here. Imagine a room full of nothing but white people, and then there's one white person who says like, "Oh man, dude, there's there's just like nothing but white people in here. We need to bring in a in a in a person of color." And then when that person of color comes into the room, that same white person or another white person goes like, well, "Why why is this guy in here now?" It's like, "Well, what the fuck? <laughs> you all just agreed that <laughs> you needed to like." change something and then when the change comes you're 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 getting out of pocket it makes no sense but you know the the whole the whole core you know argument of you know comic theater and this is and this is my opinion and, and so i'm just gonna feel like it's true um is, is just is just founded in bitterness and entitlement its biggest like proponents and propagandists are all espousing entitlement and bitterness they don't have something that a person of color or LGBTQ or who is female has that they want. Or they're playing with characters that they like and they've changed them. And, and, and that in of itself is just so ridiculous because anybody who's been a real comic book fan for any length of time has watched these characters change so much over the years and then change back. You know? Like, when you hear people talk about like race bending now, it's like that happened when we were all like in grammar school. James Rhodes was Iron Man for a good clip. You know, Thor was better a Bill and then a frog. You know, and, and none, none of this is really new. There's just a bit more of it. And now the people who are doing it, there's a few more of them who look like the, like the characters that are in the comic books. So when you hear people arguing against that, it, it, it's it's almost impossible to believe that they're arguing anything except for discrimination. That's it. Because it makes yeah. no sense otherwise. It makes no sense otherwise. I enjoyed the heck out of Jane Foster's run on Flight 4, knowing full well that this was, you know, temporary. had a timestamp on it. You know, and, and I would love to see that character back, but, you know, that's what also makes comics great. Things are temporary. You know? Or, you know, Iceman being gay. Like, and... It's Iceman. It's not like he's the like, most prolific X-Men in the entire like, group. You know, and it's like, and it actually made a lot of sense. <laughs> it's not like it was thoughtless. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting to me because I actually, I, I did a poll over on Twitter of, uh, I asked three different questions. Was, assuming the origin and the history of the character are the same, if an adaptation of your favorite character is made and they've changed the gender, is that important to you? It, then I asked the same about race and religion. And the reason I asked it is because I'm a, I'm a big Ragman fan uh, over at DC. And to me, if you go and you take Ragman and you change the fact that he's Jewish, that changes something inherently about the character because of the origin of his powers, the suit the history and all that, if you're a Ragman fan or if you've read any Ragman stories that you know is there. But if I look at Batman and I say, okay, he comes from wealth. His family was killed in an alley. He took some, you know, he, he, he took his goals and, and he put that towards uh, A, B, C or D. There's nothing about that story that tells me Batman can't be black. 
Well, I would actually disagree with that point. Okay. And, be- and, and I'm glad you I'm glad you are because this is something I've thought and I want I I love it when people uh, disagree with me and 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 try to set me right here. So, yeah. you're a comic book and, creator, so you set me down the right path here. And 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 believe you me, it's not like I haven't thought of like, hmm, what would black or like Asian or Latino Batman be? But <laughs> when I thought about like, you know, uh, Batman as a character, I was like, well, I mean, one of the things that's fundamental to him is like legacy well. The Wayne family has a long history in Gotham City. I'm like, yeah, if this happened to a wealthy young white kid, this is this could this would be the path that he goes on. But what's the likelihood in America of that same person being like black? That percentage goes down drastically. Like the chances of a rich black kid whose whose family has generational wealth in the United States <laughs> to get it, his parents getting shot and him becoming a vigilante. Like now we're getting into some fiction. <laughs> you know, it's just like it's just like what are the chances like that happening you immediately just go into conspiracy theory it's like all right well somebody really had it out for this family <laughs> so I, I think i think that's one case where i could say like you know there there is a reason for you know um batman to be white if you put him in the context of like modern america there's no reason for um superman to be right um there's no reason for Wonder Woman to be. And in right. fact, I've always thought it was kind of like a, a, a little bit of a miss that they didn't like play into a bit more of her like Greekness and her uh, bisexuality. You know, like that's a character. It's just kind of like, yeah, she's both of those things. And I don't know if you've ever been to Greece, but she's about two shades too light. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I get what you're saying. And, and you know what? The, your point about Batman actually kind of helps solidify the point I was making. The only time it matters is if it matters to the character and the character's history. If yeah. I so, for instance, when uh, I, you know I love Green Lantern, when oh, yeah. I when when Green Lantern uh, DC did the whole New Fifty Two and they did the Earth Two thing and they made Alan Scott gay. Initially, yeah. I was like, "Come on, you can't do that." But then I thought about it, gave it some thought. I calmed myself down. I took a step back. I waited till the issues came out, and I don't know if you read that, but like the origin and the way they did the whole thing with the the ring that he was going to propose to his husband to be becoming the ring that uh you know became the power and all this stuff it's like one of my one of my things that i was uh, having a problem with initially with them making alan scott gay was i love jade and obsidian so much doesn't this take away jade and obsidian then this whole legacy that he passes down who says he can't be a sperm donor who says he can't adopt like you know that's so so you know it takes it it, it, I, i wonder if there's some people out there who are again, yeah go ahead and again consider that you're thinking about that while also talking about a magic ring yeah see exactly exactly yeah. exactly exactly well i don't i don't want to keep you too much longer so uh, i want to give you a chance to talk about the stuff you've got uh the stuff you've got going on over at humanoids the stuff you're doing i mean you're working with mark wade dude <laughs> like, yeah yeah i mean that was one of those things where it, it, it's like I, I I never thought that would be the case or that I would have that opportunity. I mean, Mark is, I'm a huge Flash fan and, and Mark knows it. And I'm just like, dude, like we, we still have not had like a Flash conversation. <laughs> like that, that's coming. You know, we just really sit down and, and break it down. But, um, you know, it, it's been, it's been so great working with somebody who's been doing this for so long and learning as well as contributing to something as, as cool as I think, uh, ignited is going to be. Um, I, I think the whole universe, it's been like a great opportunity to be like one of the creative architects of, of the H1 universe and kind of like put my stamp across, you know, the entirety of what, of what this new comic book world is going to be along with, um, Carla and Yannick, you know, and then, and then also having like Mark come in and then John Cassidy, it's just been one of those things where it's just like, you know, I, I've known John Cassidy for like almost my whole career in comics, and this is the first time we're ever like working together, and it's it is just amazing. You know, and then to do something with like such a, you know, huge huge publisher. You know, like maybe maybe not in the United States, but I mean, I, I and and I'm a bit of a comic book francophile, but you know, anytime you go to like, you go to Paris, like it's just like this one area where it's just like nothing but comic book shops next to each other, like competing. <laughs> you know, and and people who walk into them are just like from all walks of all walks of life. It's like old people, young people, men, women, like and just like the whole spectrum. You know, it's not just like one segment of geek culture. It's just part of the culture. 
And so when you have that kind of like stuff baked into, you know, what you're doing, it, it's just really exciting. Right. And the first published uh, material out of Ignited will be in the free comic book day, free comic book day sampler, right? Yeah, that's right. We're gonna we're gonna tease you guys a little bit, give you give you a small taste of like what we've got uh, brewing. Yeah, I can't I can't wait for it. Um, this will come out before Free Comic Book Day, so you you folks out there listening who are intent on checking out what uh, Mark Wade and and Kwanzaa have got going on over with Ignited, I definitely check it out. And what what Kwanzaa's talking about with humanoids, I was if you go to the humanoids website, you can read up on the history of humanoids. It wasn't always known as humanoids. Now, this is a this is a comic book company that's been around since the if I sixties right or early seventies. Yeah, yeah. It started by Mobius, and um, I'm trying to remember everybody's name. I'm still I'm still learning some of the history, <laughs> but I mean, when we talk about like you know artists, you know, truly like masters of the craft, like that that's built into like the foundations of it. Like we're talking about like Geiger and Mobius and like. Jodorowsky's book is, you know, with humanoids. We, 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 we're not even on the same plane <laughs> in terms of <laughs> comics as these guys. It's like the stuff that they've done has just been like amazing. And it's, it's that sort of the thing that got me like so excited because, you know, oddly I'd been traveling back and forth to like, you know, France quite a bit before this, you know, opportunity came in. And when it did, I thought it was just sort of like karma. You know, here, here I was sort of falling, falling in love with this like industry in Europe and then I did an opportunity to work with one of the biggest publishers there. It's just, it's just too, too good to be true. And speaking of too good to be true, I, 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 I couldn't be a good fan of black without asking. It's been optioned for film. How's that going? Uh, that's been also really a, a really amazing opportunity. I mean, we, when we, we had gotten a film offer the day that we launched the Kickstarter. So it's been, <laughs> it's been one of those things where it's like, you know, been such a learning experience, you know, uh, with all of the different studios, like that wanted to work with us. And then, you know, finally, like finding one like Studio 8, who we felt really got the project and what we were doing and really kind of wanted to do it, you know, for, for all their own reasons, but all the right reasons. And it, it's been an amazing collaboration, like working on it, working with like Superman, who's like you know, writing the treatment for the film and, and honestly seeing him come up with ideas that make me really jealous. <laughs> it makes me want to like go back and rewrite the whole thing. And just like, Oh man, why didn't I think of that? You know, but I mean, I, I also very much made it like clear to everybody in that endeavor that I wanted them to make a film and not to like just adapt. A comic book. I'm a huge fan of uh, The Shining, you know, and, and, and Kubrick's take on Stephen King's novel because you know he took everything that was in that novel and he just distilled it down into like all of like like all of like the horror and dread and isolation. But he did that with like very little, and but also a lot, you know. But it, it, it cut out a lot of the fat, and I was just like, it's just one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a big horror fan, but uh, I, I can definitely at least appreciate the the history and the the impact behind something like The Shining and the way that was done. Oh yeah, um, and I'm, I'm not a horror fan either, by the way. So that's when you really have a good movie. It's like you know what? that that that's amazing. I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you've got you've got Ignited coming out. You guys are working in behind the scenes on on uh, the stuff uh, for for the option for film uh, for Black. Uh, Black is still coming out with the Black AF line. Uh, we got Devil's Die coming out right now, and 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 you're doing the plots on that. I noticed. Uh, so it seems like this this world that you've created is expanding beyond just you. Uh, so so that's cool. Yeah, I mean that's always kind of like been the dream is to like you know, build this universe, and much like you know, like other uh, comic book playgrounds, like let other people come in and 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 do their take on it. So. You know, hoping that I can at some point like finish the the black trilogy, you know, which is my original intent, and just have set the foundation for other people to you know like, jump in there and like you know like build some awesome sandcastles. For sure, you know, you've done you you did the you did this series, and then the trade paperback came out, and then Black AF America Sweetheart came out, and it was its own kind of unique graphic novel, and then we went back to the issue format with Widows and Orphans, and now Devils Die. Uh, are we gonna get a black omnibus or something at some point? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're 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 working on the uh, the sequel to Black right now, 
um, and you know the, the second part of the trilogy. So it, it's always I've always intended it to be like a, a three parter. I, I compare it to not not in scope or at least not in presence to like Star Wars, where it's like it's very much New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and then uh, I can hopefully you know walk away into the sunset and people have you know something fun to play with. Awesome. No better note to leave it on, but I do have to ask because I'm a fan of his. Is Jamal back for part two? Absolutely. Perfect. No, no, no better. I love Jamal, man. I'm, I'm so glad you guys did it in black and white because sometimes I feel like colors can, depending on the colorist and, and, and their understanding of the goals of the project, sometimes it can really impact the art. But when you gave Jamal just the, the chance to do it black and white, like, <laughs> yeah, that was very, that was very much on purpose. And, and everybody was just like, wait, you're crazy. Why are you doing this in black and white? And I'm just like, because this comic book is called black and it's about like race people. <laughs> it's going to, it's going to be in great hands. <laughs> awesome. Was there anything else you wanted to promote before we let you go? Uh, no, nothing I can talk about yet. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Kwanzaa. It was nice to have you. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Kwanzaa Sajifo. As you can tell, Kwanzaa and I had a good time conversing with one another, and his perspective on life and the comics industry really shined through. One technical thing to note as we move forward on this program. I am a comics podcaster. My guests are not. Because of what I do, I have access to semi-professional gear, including a quality microphone. My guests often do not. So if the audio from my conversation with Kwanzaa sounded in any way muffled, blame the tools. Though I did figure out a way to make things sound clearer than they initially came across with some audio editing software. So hopefully everything worked out in the end. As I mentioned during the show, please head on over to the website creativecreditpodcast.home.blog to see the post for this episode. There you will find a link to the often-referenced article Kwanzaa wrote in 2016 on Bleeding Cool, as well as a link to the free Comic Book Day digital preview of the H1 line published by Humanoids, of which Kwanzaa and Mark Wade's Ignited is a part of. Also, if you're hearing this on the day it comes out, the follow-up to Black, titled White, is in the final six days of its campaign over on Kickstarter. As I say this, it's very close to its goal, and I hope the listeners can help get it over the hump in the days to come. So while you're on the site, click the link to support the next installment of what has become an incredible series. Now, your feedback. I didn't get a ton of feedback for episode one, but that's expected for the launch of any new show. However, as promised last episode, I do want to read some listener feedback I did get. Let's start over on Twitter. KB Likes Comics said, Chad, great first episode. Love the dude's artwork and outlook on life and absolutely love Nexus. I hope you'll be able to connect with Mike Barron in a future interview and I'd always like to hear another follow-up interview with Steve. Maybe after the newspaper strip collection comes out. I would love to interview Mike Barron, Kyle. I actually have already reached out to him via his website and at this time I have not heard back. But I'm not in the business of pestering people for their time, but maybe I'll try again in the near future. As for having Steve back, you know I would not say no. The Jack said, Just finished the first ep. It was fun to listen to. Looking forward to the next ep. Keep it up. Thank you very much for your support. The Jack has been an avid supporter of most things I do, and it was very encouraging to have him follow me along to this show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. My friends at the Dr. DC podcast said, Congrats to our friend Cage Gnarly, that's my Twitter handle, on the launch of a brand new interview podcast, Creative Credit. Check it out, comic fans. Thanks to the Doctor and Richard over at Dr. DC Podcast for their support. They're good friends, and I really enjoy their show, as I've been an active listener since episode six. If you're into learning more about the DC universe, check out the Dr. DC Podcast. That's it for Twitter. As of right now, there's no emails to speak of, but let's wrap up this feedback with some more amazing people in the form of iTunes reviews. Laurel, also known as Mountain Flower One, left a five-star review and said, This is an interview-centric show. It takes a good interviewer to make that work. Chad has proven he's up to the task with his well-researched and carefully chosen questions. He got the most value from his limited time with first guest Steve Rude. Well worth listening to. Thank you so much for your support, Laurel. 
Laurel is a regular listener also of the Lantern cast and is extremely supportive of most things we do. It meant the world to see her follow me over here and leave such a positive review. Kyle Benning of podcasts such as King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, as well as the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour said, I love a wide variety of comic podcasts, but my favorite episodes are always ones that include interviews with comics creators, so lo and behold, there is now a podcast devoted solely to that. I love hearing about the creative approach to creating characters. And the first episode is with one of the all-time great comic book artists, Steve Rude. Host Chad did a great job getting the dude to open up and talk about his art. Can't wait for more. I highly recommend this one. Five stars. Wow. Thanks so much, Kyle. As I mentioned, Kyle is a fellow comics podcaster, so to have his support early on as not just a comics fan but a fellow podcaster is a fantastic stamp of approval. That's going to do it for feedback on this episode. But I would love to come back next month with more tweets, emails, and reviews to read. Every little bit helps share the show to more and more people. At the moment, I don't have our next episode recorded, so I can't tell you for sure who's on next, but there are talks currently happening, so keep an eye on our Twitter account. To that end, if you'd like to follow the show, you can follow it on Twitter at creativecredit underscore. You can also send an email to lanterncast at gmail.com, and be sure to mention creative credit in the subject line. Until next time, remember... Marvel or DC, television or film, print or digital, we're all comics fans. And as Kurt Vonnegut once wrote, There's only one rule I know of, babies. God damn it, you've got to be kind. Views and opinions expressed by the guests on Creative Credit do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Creative Credit is not affiliated with any comic industry publisher unless otherwise mentioned. Music for the show was produced by the Bad Mamma Jammas from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, found at Bad Mamma Jammas on Facebook.